Listeners, this is Gerard Robinson coming at you from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. Every week we bring really interesting guests and topics to talk about education writ large, but also social science. We talk about economics, we talk about money and other things. Every now and then we have an opportunity to be blessed by having a guest co-host. And today is one of those days. And we have Carrie McDonald, who's been with us before. Always glad to partner with her. How are you doing, Carrie? I'm doing well, Gerard. It's great to be back with you. Yeah, I think the last time we were together would have been early spring. And so this is a good way to move us into the summer. And I don't know what this weather's like where you are, but it's 82 today, but it's going to be 90s plus moving forward. So it's going to be pretty humid over the next four or five days. Yeah, it's beautiful here in Boston. I'm heading up to New Hampshire this week for the Porcupine Freedom Festival for some great talks there. And I'll also be recording some episodes of my podcast, the Liberated Podcast, which will be focused on education, entrepreneurship, and some innovations in homeschooling and all kinds of good things. So the weather looks great here for that. Excellent. Well, what story has you excited today? I'm really interested in an article that was linked to a podcast at The Economist this week about the future of learning. And it's always interesting to kind of imagine what education will be like 10, 20, 30 years from now. And in this particular article and episode, they were focused on 20 years from now, what would learning look like? And you could tell from the sort of snapshot that they gave, the concern was that technology was going to take over. It was going to replace teachers. It was going to create sort of this stale, stifling kind of learning environment that wouldn't be serving students well. And it reminded me a little bit of this fear about new technology or fear about the ways in which technology could negatively impact our lives that, of course, has been with us for centuries, really. And in fact, in my unschooled book, one of my favorite quotes was from a journalist who said, uh, speaking about a new piece of technology, this will make us nothing but transparent heaps of jelly to one another. And this was a journalist in the late 19th century talking about the telephone. And so it makes me think a little bit more suspiciously about kind of doomsday predictions about technology and instead recognize that really technology improves our lives in many ways. And the same can be true for our learning. So it was worth listening to. The Economist podcast did bring in Sal Khan from Khan Academy, who I think offered a more optimistic view of the future of learning and technology, but definitely were listening to and reading. Got it. It's amazing how we pick and choose how to be offended when it comes to technology. When it's technology for us to build a muscle, you know, the right arm, left arm, or somewhere else in our body, or it's AI to actually help us think better, we're all for it. But somehow we don't think the same AI that helps our body, helps our mind, that somehow when it's outside of us, 
or if it's created within the for-profit sector and not per se used solely in the nonprofit, that somehow it's evil. I'm with you and, uh, and others who say that there is a role for technology, there's a role for AI, and there's a role for entrepreneurship and investments. And so it makes a lot of sense to me. None of this means that I'm not aware that there are horrible ways in which people have used AI, the dark web and some of the things that take place there is simply one example. But technology and education, it's here to stay rather than fight against it. I think we need to fight for it, fight for it in ways that are smart, that are ethical, and then at least we'll raise some philosophical questions for all of us to answer because our children and grandchildren, getting to your point, they're going to inherit a very different America than we know today. We don't know how many amendments will be made to the Constitution. If one of those amendments, in fact, will focus on technology and what it means to make us a more perfect union. So I'm glad we're continuing to have the conversations about uh, technology and education and glad to see we're focused on the future. My article today is a reflection on the past, and it goes back 50 years. And as many know that on June 23rd, 1972, Congress enacted or basically added Title IX to an education amendment, and it was signed into law by Richard Nixon. And what it did was to start a platform or create a platform in which we can talk about the role of women, not only in American society, not only in sports, but the role of women in the American economy in general. And so we're celebrating 50 years. And when we think about Title IX, understandably, we primarily think about sports because that is one arena where we put sports under a microscope and began to look at numbers, investments in sports, whether or not women were getting equal access across the board. Well, I want to use the sports analogy, but I also want to use it to talk about what women did after they played sports. And this is from an AP article titled, Title IX Propel Women from College Courts to CEO Offices. And there's just a few women they highlight. So one is Gail Boudreaux. She played basketball at Dartmouth. And in fact, she's still the school's career scoring leader and rebound leader. She was three-time Ivy League and she moved on to be, also earn academic All-American status. Now, in her business career, she earned actually an MBA from Columbia, and that led to several businesses. She's the former CEO of United Healthcare and took over as president and CEO of Anthem Incorporated, which is a Fortune 500 company in 2017. Another example is Ginny Gilder. She's a two-time Olympian, 1980 and 84. She was the American Roar of the Year at Yale in the 1970s. She took that and moved forward, earned an MBA from Washington in 1991. And then she founded Washington Works. It's a Seattle-based foundation which helped women receive public assistance in the 1990s and later became the CEO and founder of the Gilder Office for Growth, which was a family investment office. Closer to home on my neck of the woods is Jackie McWilliams. As many of you know, I'm in Virginia. She went to Hampton University. She was a star on Hampton basketball and volleyball team. She helped Hampton win the NCAA Division II basketball title in 88. She was also a freshman of the year. She took her prowess on the court and then moved it into management. She earned a master's degree from Temple. She later coached at Virginia Union, an HBCU in Richmond, and later became the first female assistant in the Central Intercollegiate Athletic Association men's basketball team, which is something we rarely see. And then she moved forward. 
ultimately in 2012, becoming the first black female commissioner of the CIIA. And as Meg Whitman, of course, many of our leaders know who she is across the board. But these are examples just of four women. There are 404,000 more, actually, that we can see how they used what they learned playing sports and took that into the field of work. Corporate America in the nonprofit sector, Fortune 500, as well as small business, also public assistance. So 50 years and things are moving. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So it's interesting. The Associated Press did a nice spread of related articles connected to Title IX for this 50th anniversary tribute. And it, I think it's really interesting, Gerard, that you and I both sort of gravitated to the articles around some of these women business owners and CEOs who were kind of the pioneers in pushing for Title IX years ago and now have had success in their careers. And of course, were instrumental in making women's sports come to be and enable those of us who kind of came after them and participated in both high school and college sports to be able to enjoy that. So just a, a wonderful commemoration. And again, interesting to see how many of these pioneers turned into entrepreneurs. Absolutely. And naturally, we also know there's a great deal of controversy and concern and conversation and applause as it relates to the role of men who began to transition into women's sports. So these articles did not focus on that, at least the ones that I read, but it's also one that's part of the conversation today. All right. Well, as you know, we have great guests. We're shortly going to be joined by Robert Pondicio. He is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also a former journalist with 20 years of experience in the field. He's also the author of a book, Think Seriously About What Education Looks Like. And he's probably one of 100 people in the country within the school reform segment where people listen to his voice. And so he's going to join us soon and look forward to that conversation. Welcome back to the Learning Curve podcast. We are thrilled to be joined today with our guest, Robert Pondicio, who is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on K-12 education, curriculum, teaching, school choice, and charter schooling. Before joining AEI, Pondicio was a policy analyst and education reform expert at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, an education policy think tank. He previously worked for the Core Knowledge Foundation and as an advisor and civics teacher at Democracy Prep Public Schools. Pundicio became interested in education policy issues when he started teaching fifth grade at a struggling South Bronx public school in 2002. Before that, he worked in journalism for 20 years, including in senior positions at Time and Business Week. Robert Pundicio, welcome to the Learning Curve podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. How do they say it? Long-time listener, first-time caller or guest? It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you here today. I'm going to ask you a few questions, and then Gerard has a few that he wants to ask you. But let's begin by talking about the fact that you've been a protege of the curriculum expert, Edie Hirsch, Jr. Would you share with our listeners why you find his work on K-12 education so compelling and why it's not been more widely embraced among the education establishment. Oh, man, we could talk about that till the cows come home. That's a long, complicated topic. 
The short version is, and boy, I've said this a thousand times over the years, Don Hirsch, the D and E.D. Hirsch stands for Don, so we call him Don. He was the one educational theorist whose work described what I saw in my South Bronx classroom every single day. Just to paint the picture for you, literally 20 years ago, almost to this day, I started teaching at what was the lowest performing school in the lowest performing district in New York City, PS 277 in the South Bronx. And having not set foot in an elementary school since I was myself an elementary school student, I had virtually no background in education. I was a, you know, an alternative certification teacher. So there was a bit of a willing suspension of disbelief that went into my work. In other words, you know, I didn't know how to teach reading. I was a proficient reader and whatnot. And the way I was taught to teach reading to my struggling fifth graders went from willing suspension of disbelief to kind of skepticism to almost a militance and anger because I just realized that the way we were trying to teach kids how to read was just not effective. And then I discovered E.D. Hirsch's work on my own, and it just went off like a lightning bolt in my mind. It just described exactly what I was seeing in my classroom every day. Kids who could decode, in other words, they could read the words, but they struggled with comprehension. And everything that I had been taught as a teacher was that, oh, well, they're struggling with comprehension because they don't find it engaging. It doesn't reflect their experience or interest. Hirsch was the guy who would say, no, it's background knowledge. It's vocabulary. In other words, if everything we were teaching kids was to read things that were of interest to them that reflected their own experience, what I've since come to say or describe as all mirrors and no windows, well, then that's going to limit their literacy. And when I would bring it up in my ed school classes and my professional development, I'd say, hey, what about this guy Hirsch? You would always hear some version of, oh, that's that dead white guy stuff. Nobody takes that seriously. And this is where the skepticism turned to militants and, and anger. Say, so, wait, his work is not about that at all. It's about literacy. It's about background knowledge. We're just giving these kids kind of like starvation rations of rich curriculum of science and history. This is why they're struggling with comprehension. It's not that they can't read. They're reading out of their depth all the time. I mean, that was the soul of Hirsch's work, still is. I became so animated by his work that I almost literally ended up knocking on his door to say, hey, look, this is who I am. This is what I do. Let me help you because you're the guy who's figured it out. And uh, trust me, as a recent departing teacher, we are not learning what you know as teachers and we need to. Mm, I love that, that you reached out to him and really wanted to connect and learn more. So, you know, Hirsch has been unique in that he's an academic UVA English professor who also dedicated much of his intellectual energy and professional time emphasizing academic content knowledge in K-12 education, which you've just talked about. Why haven't we seen more higher education figures in the core academic disciplines, English, math, science, history, provide leadership in primary and secondary schooling? And, and how do you think we could encourage higher quality content experts to lend their voices to school reform? What a fascinating question. And you'd think after 20 years, I'd have a good answer for you. It's almost like there's this kind of church state or Chinese wall in between higher ed and K-12. I mean, for the last 20 years or more in the education reform movement, I don't think I'm wrong about this. I think we've more or less given schools of education a bit of a pass. So there's not that much interplay, I think, between higher ed and K-12. And look, I mean, it's just, I think, and this is, again, a lot of the stuff that Don Hirsch has written about over the years. There's a lot of kind of, and I don't want to be overly dismissive, feel-good notions about what kids need to learn. In other words, we are more concerned or are often more concerned with kind of what I would describe as the homilies of K-12 education. 
as opposed to more the nuts and bolts of the rich content knowledge, the subject matter knowledge. And it's kind of interesting. I just think about how, you know, ed reform, I think, is just given a pass to K-12 or to ed schools in reforming K-12 education. It continues to astonish me the, the degree to which we just assume that schools of education are just kind of damaged goods or broken and really can't be fixed or that we can't, as a policy matter, exercise more influence of them. Having said that, I mean, it's a lot better off now than it was a few years ago. I mean, I just wrote a piece for the Ford Institute just last week based on a RAND report that is noting that there's this kind of quiet work being done under the aegis of a group put together by the Council of Chief State School Officers, where you've got about a dozen or so states looking to influence curriculum and instruction. And this RAND report suggests that they are, at the very least, changing teacher habits in terms of curriculum adoption and use. I mean, that's the first step. You really kind of need to get to enthusiastic and and informed use. So it's a long process. So I don't want to leave the impression that it can't be done, but we need to do more of it. And those states may be providing some leadership as to how we might go about it. So let's switch now and talk about civic education, which has been a topic that you've written about in the past and certainly an element of Hirsch's work. And I wonder if you could discuss how and why civics and the study of U.S. history have fallen out of favor in so many K-12 schools over the last several decades. And what do you think that means for the health of our representative government, civic mindedness and liberty? Boy, I hope at some point you ask me a question I can answer in 10 seconds or less. (laughs) This is going to be another kind of long. That'll be for dry. (laughs) It's a great question and a fascinating one. I often joke that that Horace Mann went to his grave without ever having once uttered the phrase college and career ready. And what I mean by that joke is that we had a very different concept of schools. And you're right to invoke Hirsch again, because he wrote a terrific book a few years ago called The Making of Americans which really unpacked some of the earliest thinking about the purpose of public education in America, even before Horace Mann. I mean, guys like, you know, Benjamin Rush and Noah Webster, and even the founders writing the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, who were so concerned about faction. And there was a surprising amount of content written by those in the founding generation that really thought deeply about education and said, look, you know, schools are the mechanism by which I think it was the Benjamin Rush phrase, you create, quote, Republican machines, meaning ordinary people who were capable of self-government. You know, that was a overriding concern of thinkers of 250 years ago. That means civic education. That means preparation not for the private ends of college and career readiness, as we term it now, but preparation for public life, for active participation and civic engagement. And I think it's fair to say we have just drifted so, so far from that shore that now when you even suggest that to some people, they're like, well, you know, why would you think that should be a purpose of schooling? Now, maybe that pendulum has come back a little bit more in the last couple of years. You can't open a paper anymore without somebody saying that our democracy is imperiled. So the conditions should be ripe because of that for a return to civic education. The obvious downside is I think whenever you say civic education, particularly to those of us who are right of center, we tend to view that as code for a kind of aggressive activism in civics and civic education that kind of leaves a bad taste in one's mouth. But there is always going to be that work to be done, right? I've been spending a lot of time lately thinking about exactly this question 
and what is the purpose of a school and is it time to rethink the kind of you know social contract if you like that we have between families and parents and children and the outcomes that we seek in schooling and you can come at this many number of different ways I don't think I'm alone in thinking that the kind of technocratic focus on just outcomes, while important, has been, you know, minimal caloric content, as it were. In other words, I'm not sure that things are that much better off than they were, say, 20 or 30 years ago before we fetishized test scores as kind of the alpha and omega. So it's long story short, I think the time is long overdue to start kind of rethink that kind of civic function of education. But it's going to be difficult to do that in the, in the current political environment. So, Robert, you've written a book, How the Other Half Learns, Equality, Excellence, and the Battle Over School Choice. I've got a copy. I've read it, loved it. And when I initially saw the title, it reminded me of a book, I guess, published 129 years earlier called How the Other Half Lives. And Jacob Riss' book about tenement slums in New York. Your story is about... New York. It's about really the network of charter schools called Success Academy. Eva's been on our show before, but your story is really just a microcosm of the American story of reform, of politics and change. Talk to us about some of the larger lessons that we as listeners should draw from your book, not just for New York, but the broader conversation about let's the phrase you just used, the social compact. Thanks, George. And by the way, go to the head of the class. You were one of the few readers who has made that immediate connection that I kind of thought was obvious between my title and the homage to Jacob Rees. Yes, I'm a thoroughgoing E.D. Hersheyan, you know, core knowledge guy that I just assumed that was part of everybody's cultural literacy, but it was not. But you got it. So thank you. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, the exact conceit of the book, Gerard, was exactly that. I mean, if, if listeners know Success Academy, then they know the basic contours of the backstory, which is that Eva Moskowitz has succeeded in building something that is literally unprecedented in American education, which is a network of charter schools in which there is quite literally not a bad one. And I'm making air quotes, as I say, bad, because I mean they are good by the standards by which we hold schools accountable. I don't have the data in front of me, but weakest success academy still gets like 80, 90% of their kids passing the New York State ELA and math test. And to my knowledge, no other charter network in America has grown to the size of hers without at least one or two outliers and sometimes quite a few outliers. So based on the way we keep score in education and ed reform, she seems to have figured out something that nobody else has managed to figure out. So if you're me or a guy like me or you, I suppose, we want to figure out, okay, what's going on here? What has she solved? And how can we translate that to American education at large? So that was the premise by which I spent a year embedded at a Success Academy school. And interestingly, it was literally in the same neighborhood where I was a fifth grade teacher for five years, directly across the street almost from where I was a student teacher when I started teaching. So I was looking for exactly that. What are the lessons? And The bad news, I suppose, is I don't think that there are a lot of lessons, and that's because not only are these schools of choice, but they are very demanding schools of choice, demanding for families. In other words, it's just damn hard, frankly, for a family to persist at Success Academy. They make a lot of demands of families, read with kids every night, be very accountable to the schools. I'll oversimplify here broadly, but I think the basic idea, what she's kind of figured out how to do is get every adult in a child's life basically singing from the same hymnal. 
And that's difficult to do in K-12 at large, right? In other words, if you sign up willingly in a school of choice and you sign up for this intensive form of education, well, then you're buying in, you're a knowing consumer, you're much more likely to be able to do that than in a run-of-the-mill K-12 school. At a slightly more granular level, the demands are such that, and this is just observation, I always feel the need to point this out, this is not data, this is just kind of a journalistic observation, it's unmistakable that the demands mean it's a lot easier for a, a certain kind of families to persist and be successful here. I think this was in the book. At one point, I went on a field trip with some second graders, and I think there were more dads chaperoning that second grade field trip than I had seen in five years of parent-teacher conferences. So in other words, the school culture kind of valorizes or requires a lot of parental bandwidth. So you end up seeing families who are intact, employed, ambitious for their kids, religious and spiritual, for example, they have more, a little bit more social capital, perhaps, than other families in that same neighborhood. That's not a criticism, by the way. I mean, I think some folks, including, frankly, some folks at Success Academy, misinterpreted the book as saying, oh, well, you're saying that we're just parents. No, because the point I made, it repeat, made repeatedly in the book is that, yes, there's a certain bar for entry. You've got to have a certain amount of parental bandwidth to get in there at all, because of the hurdles they put in front of families. But once they're there, they are outperforming, literally outperforming the gifted and talented programs in New York City that do, in fact, handpick kids. So there's considerable magic going on there, but it's a complicated picture of what can be done when you have dedicated employees, a real clear school culture, a demanding and rigorous program, and high and ongoing levels of parental bandwidth. All of those things make it phenomenally powerful for low-income families, but phenomenally difficult to apply to K-12 at large. So let's stick to New York City again, because it's another microcosm for a larger conversation about education and politics. In this instance, it's charter schools. So right mm -hmm. now, as we speak, the Biden administration and others are pushing to really slow down the growth of charter schools. Well, this is 2022. Let's back up to October 7th, 2015 in New York City, when an estimated 18,500 families, children and children educators gathered at the Camden Plaza in Brooklyn under the motto, I fight inequality. At that time, Democratic Mayor Bill de Blasio was trying to end charter schools as we know it. Again, 18,500 families, children, educators, employees gathered to say, no, we don't want this to happen. Even then, within the school reform movement, both public and private school sectors, people began to say there's a breach in this social yep. contract. And people like, nah, Democrats have always supported charters. It won't change. Well, we're now in 2022. And when Vice President Biden then was under President Obama, who supported charters, it's a different place. What have you sure. seen not only unfold in New York City, but just writ large in our movement? That's a great question. And I guess I'm going to run the risk of kind of scooping myself a little bit. I'm actually working on a big piece as we speak for Education Next on almost exactly this question. So I'm mean, here in New York, just shortly after that rally that you described, we ran up against a, a cap in charter schools. If you want to open a charter school in New York State, you literally cannot do it anymore, at least down in New York City. There's still some cap space in upstate New York. But most of the energy and dynamism of charters in New York have has been in the last couple of decades in New York City. I mean, we've mentioned Success Academy. There's also Uncommon, Achievement First, KIPP, Democracy Prep, where I used to teach, and others. 
these fairly large, well-established, and by any reasonable metric, successful schools run by so-called CMOs or charter management organizations. I can't help but think in, in a less polarized time, if education were kind of less of a political football, those of us in New York, we would look at the, at our charter sector in New York City with no small amount of civic pride and say, look, these schools, dozens of them, are serving the cause of equity. They are accomplishing and have been for quite some time the thing that our previous mayor, who you just alluded to, Bill de Blasio, claimed to want to create with the so-called selective high schools, which is getting large numbers of black and brown students on the path to college and career and, and elite educational opportunities. Well, well, charters have been doing that for quite some time, but they're in bad odor. So it's bizarre, right, George? In other words, they all they're doing is all they've been asked to do. And here we are in New York with you know, a charter cap. We're not opening any more of them. And when we are opening new charters, they tend to be now, those that are still opening in upstate New York, kind of little mom and pop charter schools, community responsive charter schools, not the big CMO schools. Now, meanwhile, parents still are swelling the waiting list for those more established CMO network schools. So it's kind of interesting, no matter how you slice it, it does seem like this is a very hard time to be in the charter community in New York. Either you are being thwarted in any attempt to open new schools. If you're opening new schools, well, then you've got a lot of work to do because you don't have the resources of a CMO. It's It almost feels like you're back to 25 years ago when we were opening schools in church basements and whatnot, and everything was being bootstrapped. I'm tempted to suggest that that's a bit of a bellwether for the way charters are going nationally, where once that bipartisan coalition that we enjoyed for a couple of decades in the ed reform world, once that fell apart, it just became another way to say that that reform sneezed and and the charter world caught cold. Makes a lot of sense. And since we're discussing charter schools, I want to say hello to all of our colleagues who are in Washington, D.C. for the National Charter School Conference held there for the next few days. So by the time you hear this, you may still be in D.C. And those of you who will listen later, thank you for getting together. Both folks on the right, left, middle, all stripes and everything in between. So here's my last question for you. You recently wrote a good piece in National Affairs about how to restore trust in public institutions, really public schooling. For some of our listeners, they may not be aware of national affairs. Tell us a little bit about that medium and then kind of give us an idea of why you think the topic of public schooling and trust is important at this time. Yeah, thanks. It it just came out today as we're speaking, and it's the first time I've had the opportunity to write for National Affairs, which is a quarterly founded by my AEI colleague, Yuval Levin, who is maybe the preeminent public intellectual that we have in this country at this time. So it's, it's an honor and a thrill to have anything appear between those covers. The reason this interests me, it's funny, I've been accused of being a contrarian, and and I don't think I am, but maybe I dwell in complexity. And, and if you've been in the reform world for any period of time, and you know, tell me if you disagree, George. You know, a lot of us who are, and I'm a you know, school choice charter school parent advocates. If we think long and hard about our advocacy, we probably recognize a tendency to kind of take advantage of weakness in public education because it creates the conditions, right, that further our agenda 
to drive demand for school choice, both among parents and politically. There's a, something a little bit unholy about that, right? And again, I hope my choice advocate and charter advocate, you know, bona fides are in good order. But I, I always remind my friends in this world that, look, the sun will likely go out before we have an America where the majority of kids are not in traditional public schools. It's not because we can't do anything differently. It's because it's a cultural habit. It's because we value it. So let's just kind of tap the brakes before we try to take unseemly advantage of weakness in public education, because that's where the kids go to school. So we need to be no less invested in their outcomes and the quality of education that they receive than we are interested in what happens to kids in schools of choice. And as soon as I say that, George, then I also want to make sure this critique applies to the left as well, because the second that you are envisioning your job as a public school teacher or administrator as playing a quasi-activist role, viewing schools as social justice institutions, well, then you're kind of playing fast and loose with the expectations around public education education as well. So this long piece, and it is quite long, it's about 5,000 words, I think, is hopefully a reminder to, to partisans of both stripes to just kind of, again, tap the brakes before you kind of play fast and loose with damaging this institution that educates the majority of American children and probably always will be because either you don't have the permission as a public employee to impose your social justice agenda or whatever your activist agenda is on education. And on the other hand, before you really try to take political advantage of the weakness of public education, let's remind ourselves that this is where most of the kids go to school and probably always will. So we need to remind ourselves that we have a vested an interest in those kids who will probably be the majority of kids for quite some time to come. Robert, thank you for articulating what many of us in the school reform movement have said for decades. Because we support charter schools, vouchers, ESAs, and everything else, homeschooling as well, we realize the majority of our public schools will educate our children, and we have to make them work. I've also said that we should make all the best examples Charter schools alone, there's some great high-performing Title I schools in rural areas and urban areas as well. So thank you for that. Thank you for joining us. Also, thank you for bringing Edie Hirsch. So for listeners, after you listen to this podcast, you can also go to our August 18th, 2021 podcast. You can find at the Pioneer Institute where we actually interview Edie Hirsch on common knowledge, equity, and educating citizens. So you may find some good things there. Robert, again, keep up the good work. I look forward to reading your article that you just discussed and look forward to seeing you in person at some point when uh, we're in the same room together. Here's hoping. Thanks for having me. Take care. So, Gerard, for the tweet of the week this week, it was a big week at the U.S. Supreme Court with the opinion in Carson v. Macon. So the tweet of the week is the SCOTUS blog at SCOTUS blog talking about the vote being six to three and really a victory for school choice. Absolutely. And in fact, next week, we're going to have someone from the legal team who represented the family in that case. As our listeners know, we've had other 
guests on our show who actually were the name, the plaintiff often in the cases. So look forward to that next week, a big win for families, for educators, and really for the whole idea of what choice means in America. We often focus on it in one aspect and forget that it actually is pretty ubiquitous across American life. So Carrie, with that, thank you so much for joining me. Look forward to us tag teaming again in the future. Great to be with you, Gerard, this week, and I will be back again next week to join you again. Sounds good. Take care.